KPFCF in Fresno or online at www.kpfa.org. The time is 3 o'clock p.m. Up next is Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money. Every Friday, happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. The this is Jennifer Stone with Stone Throw. Today is Tuesday, August 29th. Interesting, interesting times we are living in. <laughs> 29 August means that one year ago today, Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf states. Some anniversary. Anyway, the hurricane was just the first hit. When the levees broke, that was the second. Uh, It was also the worst civil engineering catastrophe in U.S. history. Yes, that was what it was, folks. The Army Corps of Engineers has acknowledged uh, that it did almost everything wrong from risk assessment to the technological choices. Uh, I remember, oh golly, a couple of years before, um, almost three years ago, a two-hour television special showing us what would happen if a, if the big wave hit, um, more or less like something going down the drain in the bathtub. Yes, the big circle, but... That apparently didn't happen. <laughs> we only got hit, yes, a little bit. Uh, anyway, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers confesses that it built a hurricane protection system in name only. That's what they said, in name only. And today, of course, the city remains in much the same peril as before. Same old, same old. George W. Bush is in New Orleans today. <laughs> he has yet to say mission accomplished, but he's having dinner with the mayor. And uh, I heard him say that the check was in the mail or words to that effect. Uh, I can't help but brood over the television pictures of Hezbollah, the uh, operatives. Yes, they don't show their faces, but they're handing out um, cash, $10,000 in cash to each and every homeowner in Lebanon who was hit by Israeli bombs, you know, Hezbollah promises to uh, rebuild their houses this year. Uh, the 10000 is just for a year's rent, you know, a place to live till they can uh, rebuild the housing. Somewhere years ago, I read that the first obligation of any government is to deliver. That's the deal. Public servants are hired to do that. Yes. 
to do those things for us that we are not able to do for ourselves. In the long run, governments are the only insurance policy most people have on earth. Uh, if our federal government continues to stiff the, the poor to cut off the bottom 20% of the population, and of course they're beginning to stiff the middle class, that's the that's doomsday, yes, we will see more and more um, sociopathic behavior. Yes, people are sick and tired, not going to take it anymore. The wealthy actually have an amoral streak already. They always have had. That's how they got wealthy. You know, Ted Kennedy calls those guys billionaire Benedict Arnolds. These days they just take their money out of the country. Uh, no notion of shared fate among their fellows, but the others, the disenfranchised um, uh, folks who went through that ordeal in New Orleans saw what happened. Uh, some of them have lost all feeling for others. Uh, the social contract is in shreds. I mean, why should they care after what they've seen, what they've been through? This is uh, a new amorality emerging, young people with no shame. Their sensibilities have been blunted. Tonight, Spike Lee's documentary airs on cable once more. That's the one uh, titled When the Levees Broke, a requiem in four acts Uh if you can bear to watch it, which I can't, I I watched the first half, and then at the end of the first half, I, I cracked and I couldn't look. And then part two, well, the images there were unlike anything I've ever seen on film. I'm not sure in my mind whether or not it's right to, to show corpses in that state of, well... I'm just not sure it's the right thing to do, that the dignity of the dead, well, I don't know. Uh, what is that Shakespeare line? The clay, the clay differs in dignity, whose dust is all the same, who knows? Uh, I think that Spike Lee did it to indict this administration. Uh, perhaps that's what needed to be done. I'm still not sure that... Uh, well, I, I wouldn't have the heart to expose children to, to those films, but strange times, strange times. Uh, uh, it shows all the horrors, the people left to rot, um, the, uh, the dead and the dying on the roads and in the attics. Uh, this kind of malevolent neglect on the part of the establishment can only push people over the edge, can create the bitterness and anger in the young that uh, turns them into barbarians. It's a national tragedy to see this happen in the city that was once the soul of the nation. It's an old world city, you know, the kind where joy is still the order of the day. I saw him in there, yes, there's a big sign, nothing stops Mardi Gras. Spike Lee's film had some shots of the uh, the locals in costume, giving it their all. Uh, 
It's a city where commerce is on a human scale. You know, it's all about uh, good living, not about profit. Uh, it's actually positively French in some quarters. Uh, joy and jazz and food and drink, you know all that story. European leisure, the kind that even poor people can enjoy, right? Uh, you don't have to be rich to dance. Ah, oh, no wonder the jackals are jumping in to grab the land. Yes, Puritans coming out of the woodwork. Mm. <laughs> yes, and what did they come up with? Casinos, right. Oh, talk about rotten to the core. That's the American future, a giant gambling mall, the Las Vegas of the South. I found a, a letter from a pal, a woman who worked as a uh, playboy bunny in New Orleans. There was a bunny club in New Orleans in the 1960s. Those were the days, my friend, we thought they'd never end. Her job was to hop on stage and, in her bunny costume, introduce the comics. Yes, in her little satin poofs. She had a Canadian accent. Well, a Canadian attitude anyway, so she gave the act an air, you know. <laughs> her bunny name was Misty McGee. She writes about her culture shock when she made the trip from Canada. Yes, those Canadian winters. What was it? Uh, Margaret Atwood once said, uh, she said, uh, what writers write has something to do with where they live. I live in Canada, and there's nothing you can do about the Ice Age. <laughs> yes. From the frozen north to Louisiana, uh, Misty McGee was running away from home. Quite an innocent, of course. Uh, Canada grows them that way. Here's what she writes. Uh, she writes that uh, <laughs> she was... Yes, she entered Louisiana. She saw the weeping trees and the Spanish moss and the smell. Smell of the Okefenokee Swamp in Georgia. Yes, that's a new mystery, a journey. She arrived in New Orleans and found Bourbon Street. Freedom to walk, walk out in the street with a cocktail in a plastic cup. The architecture... From another place in time, uh, wrought iron gates and balconies and the bars standing wide open, welcoming everyone, sounds of jazz everywhere. Piles of oysters on the half shell at a standing bar and fried oysters tasting like uh, a gift of the goddess, a gift of the sea. Squeeze of lemon, drop of hot sauce Cajun style, zydeco music. She heard it for the first time and loved it. All the restaurants. Uh, she found a club off Bourbon Street. That's the one that made her uh, a bunny. She wore a satin costume with bunny ears. Ah, I can just see her now. Luxurious, she said it was. Luxuriously lingering over, lingering over breakfast. Next to water fountains, the Café de Monde, chicory coffee. 
She hadn't become a vegetarian yet, so she remembers hamburger joints with fat, juicy, uh, medium-rare burgers with mayo and the works. The court of the three sisters, she says. French chefs. Yes, all of her taste buds coming alive and the wine flowing always, always. Lots of champagne in the Big Easy. Party town of the South. I wonder, yes, I wonder, maybe it's the all-time party town of the USA. Party's over. Misty McGee grew out of her bonnie suit. She's mellowed into a new age guru now. Spiritually, she's not so very different. Uh, <laughs> she got hip to that bunny thing. But she, like so many folks these days, know that life is for the living, for being. It's that ecstasy thing, you know. Uh, New Orleans may just be emblematic of our fate here in the U.S. of A. in the 21st century. Uh, a lot of the joy does seem to have gone out of things, and uh, certainly there is a moral collapse. Uh, yes, fundamentalists everywhere you look. Um, that's not morality. That's misery. Surely there is a chance that the uh, spirit will revive. The song of those times is still with us, still inside us, even here in California. If not, I am moving to Brazil. <laughs> yes, well, we must uh, look on the bright side, folks. Keep eye upon the donut, not upon the hole. When I got to KPFA today, I found a pile of new books waiting for me. It's so exciting to be part of KPFA, um, which reminds me, there's a note here that uh, asks you to pay your pledge. I'm sure you've done that. Uh, <laughs> uh, otherwise, um, I wouldn't be sitting here still with all these exciting books to go through. I think I looked at them and I think there's one here I can use for the next marathon. Uh, the, um, the one on top is I.F. Stone, a new biography of I.F. Stone. You remember Izzy Stone? Ah, oh, where's Izzy when we need him? Uh, here's what Molly Ivins says about his this book. It's called All Governments Lie by uh, Richard, what's his last name? Richard, uh, nope, Myra, M-Y-R-A, Myra McPherson. Myra McPherson, The Life and Times of Rebel Journalist I.F. Stone, title All Governments Lie, publisher is Scribner. Yes, indeed, it's in hardback, so perhaps you should wait till it comes out in paperback and then we'll get it for marathon. Molly Ivan says, I loved every page of this book. My God, what fabulous stories. Uh, all crammed into one life and above all, what a hero. Funny, fearless. She talks about all the stuff she didn't know. Uh, how uh, when his paper told him he couldn't cover the execution of Sacco and Vanzetti, he quit, hitchhiked to Boston. Uh, what a combination of integrity and learning, she writes. He really did have a wonderful time. Now is the time for all good journalists to read this book.
and remember what it's all about, says Molly Ivins. Helen Thomas, Studs Terkel, everyone has reviewed this book. Uh, Stud says that this is a definitive life and times of the most independent journalist of our epoch. I.F. Stone, known as Izzy, he revealed to us in his tiny four-page weekly, not the objectivity of the official word, but a hard truth from the bottom up. This book may be a classic, mandatory for all young journalists. That studs. Oh, yes. Helen Thomas says, would that he were alive today to lead our country to its greatest ideals again. Okay, and on and on. Praise from just about everybody you can think of. Uh, and then the next book is fiction. This is a special one for me. This is uh, a book of the short stories of Margaret Atwood. It's called Moral Disorder. Now, she hasn't come up with a book of short stories in 15 years. Uh, I can't wait to get this one home. Uh, Publishers Weekly says, an intriguing patchwork of poignant episodes. Memorable mosaic of domestic pain. Surface tensions, troubled families. Let's see. Book list says, Gimlet-eyed, gingery, and impishly funny, Atwood dissects the inexorable demands of family, the persistence of sexism, the siege of old age, and the complex temperaments of other species. Hmm. Shaped by a Darwinian perspective, political astuteness, autobiographical elements, and a profound trust in literature. Atwood stories evoke humankind's disastrous hubris and phenomenal spirit with both empathy and bemusement. Okay, yes, gimlet-eyed, gingery, and impishly funny. Yes, I was watching Margaret Atwood on uh, Bill Moyer's show last night. She is so funny. She has to explain why she's an agnostic, not an atheist. You know, Bill Moyers always poses those uh, born-yesterday questions. He always asks these, uh, well, they sound like dumb questions, but I guess Bill Moyers thinks that that's what uh, the average reader might ask. But, you know, he asks her to define God and all that sort of thing. And she didn't say something sensible like, oh, you know, God's a metaphor. She just basically said that... Uh, well, I guess she almost called him a shapeshifter. Yes, God. Uh, she says it all depends. If you read the Bible, he uh, appears as just about any and everything. Anyway, those stories are in a book called Moral Disorder. It's from Doubleday. Moral Disorder and Other Stories by Margaret Atwood. And I think, right, yes, it's in the stores now. $24. Once again, a hardback. You might want to wait till it's in paper. Crisp prose, vivid detail, blah, 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 blah. Lists and lists and pages of reviews. Reviews are kind of irritating. Why don't I just read you a poem by Margaret Atwood? Uh, it's a beautiful work in the current New Yorker. August 28, 2006, you can find a copy of this. It should be on the stands, even as we speak. And um, 
It hit me in the solar plexus. The title is Secrecy. And uh, it it subjectively defines a quality that I have found in certain male persons, uh, uh, the kind of cruel secrecy that has become, you know, part of their being. Uh, and, of course, it is the thing that causes women the terminal grief that uh, breaks their hearts. Anyway, Margaret Atwood's poem is called Secrecy, she writes. Secrecy flows through you, a different kind of blood. It's as if you've eaten it like a bad candy. Taken it into your mouth, let it melt sweetly on your tongue, then allowed it to slide down your throat like the reverse of uttering. A word dissolved into its glottals and sibilance, a slow intake of breath. And now it's in you, secrecy, ancient and vicious, luscious as dark velvet. It blooms in you, a poppy made of ink. You can think of nothing else. Once you have it, you want more. What power it gives you. Power of knowing without being known. Power of the stone door. Power of the iron veil. Power of the crushed fingers. Power of the drowned bones crying out from the bottom of the well. Well, I think that I'm going to have to put that into my book of poems that I need to keep with me in my little uh, day book, my pillow book. The one, <laughs> yes, that is full of all those poems beginning, you remember, with the T.S. Eliot ones about the rag and bone shop of the heart, that sort of thing. Um, those mixing memory and desire poems, those anguished angst, all that good stuff. <laughs> Margaret Atwood. Poetry is all I find this season to comfort me. It's like comfort food, you know, mashed potatoes and gravy. I think that poetry is... Uh, Self-indulgent and, uh, uh, what is that, uh, sensuous. You don't have to, you don't have to get your facts straight. You can just wallow in your feelings. Uh, I think Margaret Atwood would disapprove of that. She is so crisp and, uh, clear. She's such a philosopher. Watching her on, uh, Bill Moyer's show last night and looking at her picture on her new book, her new collection of short stories, Moral Disorder. She is impish. She does look like some kind of Celtic um, fairy child. Uh, I was thinking, uh, Bill Moyers asked her about her novel, The Handmaid's Tale, you know, the one about uh, 
fundamentalism having taken over our society, a futurist dystopia, uh, a book in which, you know, women are, uh, their castes are marked by the colors they wear, you know. Harold Pinter did a screenplay for the brilliant movie with Natasha Richardson and, uh, uh, let's see, Robert Duvall was in that one, Elizabeth McGovern. Be sure to get that film out if you teach, uh, courses that have any feminist slant, uh, it's an interesting thought that uh, it's coming true a little bit. Women are being uh, categorized again. Yes, the <laughs> the red handmaidens and the blue wives. The blue wives are the uh, infertile ones. Uh, curious, curious book and film. Uh, chilling. When I first read it, I remember asking students what they thought back in 1981, a good 25 years ago. I, of course, was of the opinion that uh, a return to uh, fundamentalist um, religious beliefs, at least where women were concerned, was simply impossible because we had gone too far in the women's movement. (laughs) The students told me, no, that it was quite possible that women could go back into their uh, ancient roles. Think of the Taliban, yes. It's happening all over. Uh, in any case, I was thinking that I would try to make a book list for the prayers uh, for the present administration. On Thursday morning at 8.20, I'll be talking about uh, Camus' book, The Stranger, because... Uh, George Bush has read that one, and, uh, of course, as you know, George Bush's image of himself is of uh, a kind of St. George on the, you know, uh, horse conquering the dragon, and I don't know what he would get out of Camus' book about uh, indiscriminate violence. I don't think he would connect the dots. Uh, Anyway, Adam Gopnik writes some funny things about uh, George Bush's reading habits, uh, Presidents have been known to be moved by books, um, even by essays, pamphlets, uh, journalists. Uh, let's see. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt once read Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle. That was a hundred years ago, back in 1906. That's the one about the meatpacking industry. And he was so horrified that he helped the legislature push through uh, the Pure Food and Drug Act, 1906. Now, that's an amazing event, if you think about it. Uh, certainly, fiction is as powerful as fact. Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, is said to have brought about the Civil War. When Abe Lincoln met Harriet Beecher Stowe, he said, Is this the little woman who started this great war? Uh, of course, Abe Lincoln and Theodore Roosevelt invited uh, Stowe and Sinclair to the White House at dinner, you know. Uh, Most enlightened rulers do tend to check in with the writers, poets, philosophers, thinkers of their age. You remember the current first lady made a few gestures in that direction, uh, but it fell through because she wanted only writers who spoke Republican. Uh, 
She herself, that is Laura Bush, says that her um, favorite novel is uh, The Brothers Karamazov, that Russian, <laughs> that Russian saga by Dostoevsky, all about the war between fathers and sons. Mm-hmm, that would apply to the Bush clan, the struggle for power, the primal struggle between old men and the young ones they send to die. Yes, indeed, Condi Rice uh, once uh, read Tolstoy's War and Peace, another Russian saga, but she said, well, you know, those Russians are so romantic, they're not grounded in real politics. Uh, Tis true, tis true, the poet's world is always out of reach for those who see things categorically. In Tolstoy's world, the true poet is a peasant, as close to us as potatoes. Ordinary human reality, that's what, uh, that's what Tolstoy wrote about. Uh, the boys in office call that utopian fantasies. They would call John Lennon's song Imagine Subversive. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Drop the shadow out of the Lewis Lapham, author of many trenchant books of fierce dissent, editor emeritus of Harper's Magazine, will be in Berkeley for a KPFA and Global Exchange benefit, Critical Folly of the Bush Administration, A Case for Impeachment. In conversation with Lewis Lapham will be Harry Chrysler, Executive Director of the Institute of International Studies at UC Berkeley. Make a note, Saturday evening, October 7, 8 p.m., K